Welcome to Cyberspectives, which is a regular podcast produced by the Hoover Institution in conjunction with the Stanford Cyber Policy Program. Cyberspectives provides insights and analysis on the technology, policy, legal, and geopolitical issues related to cybersecurity. Today, we're very fortunate to have Adam Siegel. Uh, Adam is the Ira A. Lipman Chair in Emerging Technologies and National Security, as well as the Director of the Digital and Cyberspace Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. An expert on security issues, technology development, and Chinese domestic and foreign policy, uh, Adam in 2016 published a book called The Hacked World Order, How Nations Fight, Trade, Maneuver, and Manipulate in uh, the Digital World. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Uh, And this describes the increasingly contentious geopolitics of cyberspace. Uh, His work has appeared in publications including the Financial Times, The Economist, Foreign Policy, The Wall Street Journal, and Foreign Affairs. So, uh, Adam, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So you've uh, done just an enormous amount of work over the years on China, and China is, of course, uh, a top of the news item in relation, uh, well, not only to cybersecurity, but to many things. But we'll start with cybersecurity. Uh, The Cyberspace Administration of China recently published a draft cybersecurity review measures document that's got quite a lot of press recently, uh, particularly in the context of the, the broader recent trade tensions between the U.S. and China. So just to start, what is the Cyberspace Administration of China? So the Cyberspace Administration of China was uh, set up uh, about five years ago um, after the Chinese leadership uh, basically decided it needed to have a kind of more robust focus on cybersecurity regulation and and organization. Um, A lot of the cyber issues were uh, distributed among the Ministry of Public Security, the Ministry of State Security, the Strait Encryption Bureau, um, the Ministry of uh, Information uh, uh, and Industries. Um, And so they uh, faced a kind of stovepiped policy process. Uh, President Xi Jinping had uh, named cybersecurity as one of his uh, primary concerns, saying that without cybersecurity, there was no national security. And so they created this new organization, the Cyberspace Administration of China, that uh, in many ways is the implementing implementing organization of uh, what's called the Small Leadership Group on Cybersecurity, which is the top leadership uh, focusing on this area. So uh, it, it helps implement uh, and draft regulations for digital and cyberspace issues. And is it correct that, that it has the authority, in other words, its, it's regulations are binding in China generally? It's not, is, is that right? Uh, to the extent that any of this stuff is binding in China, you know, there, there will still be a great deal of kind of questions about implementation. Uh, other ministries will negotiate uh, and bargain over how the, the policies are actually implemented. Um, so it, it, is not, it is not all powerful and others will push back. And, you know, as you mentioned, the, 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 the wording of this, these new regulations is fairly vague right now. Um, and that, that, that is kind of typical in the Chinese policy process. And we'll, and we'll see the kind of specific implementation as the specific agencies and ministries and provinces roll it out. And just for, for context, um, so uh, this, this podcast will, will post in, in uh, early June. Uh, is it correct that uh, these are proposed rules by the cyberspace, the, these cyber, cybersecurity review measures, and not rules that have actually been formally adopted? Is that correct? 
That's that's right. If I if I remember correctly, they basically it's a call for comment right now. They're, they're draft regulations, um, and so there will be a uh, a discussion period. Although it it won't, it's very unlikely to be a public discussion period. But yes, it'll be kind of the drafts will be massaged and and shaped. And I guess uh, why have these rules? I mean, you know, this has gotten a lot of press. Uh, um, I, I don't know about in China, but certainly for people who uh, look at such things in the United States, it's gotten some press. And so, what's what is of interest in terms of U.S.-China relations, and why why the attention uh, you know in the U.S. press? Well, I think the the U.S. attention is is, is um, kind of they are being interpreted as uh, China's response. Um, to U.S. actions uh, as part of the trade war, and in particular, uh, U.S. Uh, sanctions against Huawei. So, um, late this month in in May, the um, the Trump administration issued two new orders that are going to affect Huawei. The the, the first one um, is a is a blanket ban on. Uh, U.S. companies purchasing equipment from countries um, that are the U.S. distrusts. I mean, the U.S. officials have said that that is agnostic, but everyone realizes it uh, refers to China. The more consequential um, decision comes out of the Commerce Department and puts um, Huawei and, and 68 of its entities uh, on a on a list that basically requires U.S. government permission to sell uh, components to Huawei. Um, and so the, these cybersecurity regulations include a line that says, um, you know, Chinese uh, purchasers, suppliers, uh, operators can block foreign um, uh, suppliers uh, if the supply chain seems unreliable. So people are reading that to mean that it could be used uh, in response to what has happened to Huawei. And do we know what that would mean in in concrete terms, in terms of, you know, uh, for example, what's, let's suppose those regulations do get uh, adopted as essentially in their current form and, and China did want to then uh, implement them in a way that would impact, say, U.S. companies, uh, perhaps that, that might be doing business in China. What, what concretely might that mean? Like what, we, I don't think we really know for sure yet, and that, and that I think is you know some of the, the some of the uncertainty, and and in fact you know t today's um, Chinese papers and, and U.S. papers have a follow-up story basically that the the Ministry of, Commer of Commerce in China is is putting together a list of untrustworthy entities that again can be blocked. Um, so theoretically, that could be anything from you know equipment or chip providers like Qualcomm and Intel to um, you know, whatever, everyone is wondering if there would be a ban on iPhones and, and Apple. Um, but we just don't, we don't know yet. And we don't know how far the Chinese are going to be uh, willing to go in blocking U.S. Uh, products. And would it be correct to, just listening to your answer there, would it be correct to understand these re regulations as essentially giving the Chinese government uh, a dial to turn that they could sort of choose to, to not turn very much at all, or they could turn it a lot and sort of the more they turn it, uh, the more uh, potential impediments there might be for U.S. companies that are that are selling uh, in China. Is that a fair reading? Yeah, I think that's right. I think uh, throughout the the trade war with um, with the U.S., the Chinese response has been fairly restrained. I mean, in part that has to do because they do have fewer 
tools and instruments than the U.S. does because the U.S. you know buys so much more, so many more products from China than China does from the United States. Um, so I do think you're right, and the and the, the dial is a good metaphor that the Chinese don't want to have to go to 11 right away. They want to be able to slowly ratchet it up if they have to. Right, but but they but the, these new cybersecurity review measures would give them a lot of flexibility to to turn that dial without necessarily enacting new policy, if, if that's a correct yeah. understanding. Yeah, that's right. Okay, and then you mentioned Huawei. Uh, obviously, they've been in the news a lot recently, but there's so many aspects to the Huawei story that it's you know it's sometimes hard to sort of step back and get a holistic view. But I, I think people would maybe uh, be appreciate a little bit of background. So even if we sort of put aside the developments of you know the last few months, um, I think Huawei has been a focus of attention by the U.S. government for for quite a long time. It, it, is it in a to the extent that it's possible in a in a short period of time? Is there a sort of a, a, a kind of holistic overarching narrative of sort of why Huawei among you know all the the many uh, companies that are uh, in China and and sort of how this started and uh, what what is the basic backstory, I guess? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, Huawei and and uh, along with ZTE, which is another Chinese telecom manufacturer, has certainly been on the radar for the U.S. intelligence community and and the U.S. government for for a long time. And there was a report that came out of the House Select Intelligence Committee in two thousand twelve that basically raised. Um, issues of trust and um, with ZTE and and Huawei that that report or at least the public public report of it part of it has no um, smoking gun there is no kind of uh, discussion of yes we found these vulnerabilities or yes we found these specific instances of cooperation between Huawei ZTE and the, and the Chinese government. The suspicion of Huawei in particular has always come in part because its founder, uh, Run Zhengfei, was a PLA engineer. Um, and there was um, some contact at the beginning stages of Huawei's career, uh, growth as a company where they provided you know, some uh, help with as the PLA moved from analog to digital communications, uh, there's always been suspicion that the, the Chinese government provided some subsidies to, to Huawei. And in, uh, this week, uh, I think it was the AFP had some reporting about uh, government subsidies that have kept uh, Huawei prices low. Um, so there has always been, a, I think, a fear that there were vulnerabilities in, in Huawei products and that the U.S. Um, should not uh, use them or rely on them. I think all of this has become incredibly supercharged um, as we move towards uh, 5G um, and the fact that Huawei and ZTE are global leaders in, in 5G um, and they are you know, rolling it out globally. Right, and I guess, so this is a, a, a struggle that involves not only the US and China, but presumably has, has global consequences for the telecommunications infrastructure that we're gonna see as 5G matures all over the world, is that right? That is, and the, you know, the U.S. basically has been trying to convince friends, allies, and others that that they shouldn't use Huawei um, as they as they roll out um, at 5G. The you know the the issue has I think 
been kind of manifold. I don't, I don't think the U.S. has been particularly effective uh, in convincing its friends and allies. Um, I think partly um, because of just um, affordability and availability, right? Um, there are about five um, producers of, of 5G equipment, Huawei, ZTE, uh, Ericsson, uh, Nokia, and um, Samsung. So, you know, no U.S. provider. So it's not as if the U.S. can say you, you use U.S. products. Um, Chinese products tend to come in about a third cheaper. Um, they are um, as reliable, if not um, more technologically innovative, uh, innovative in, in some cases. And just, just when you're talking about 5G products, you're talking about certain sort of portions of the ecosystem because of course there are companies like qualcomm that that uh, that make chips for for 5g but you're talking about sort of downstream products yeah i mean uh, you know huawei and uh is uh in many in many cases you know is doing everything except the chips and some of the software so the routers and the base stations and the handsets um and other networking equipment um that the u.s is not really doing any longer and how, let's assume uh, if, if the United States continues to limit Huawei's ability to buy U.S. chips and software, how much of an impediment, and it's clearly a, at least a short-term impediment, but you know, if, if, you know, how much of an impediment do you see this being for Huawei in the long term? Uh, yeah, so short term, as you said, clearly going to be very disruptive. I mean, Huawei has said that it, it, it has been stockpiling uh, components in, in preparation for this type of uh, action um, and has been developing. However big those stockpiles are, they, they, they must be limited in size. Yes, and they're going to roll. And, and you can't really stockpile software in the sense that, you know, the next time that Google Android gets updated, um, uh, Huawei is not going to have access to that, um, so that that's a, that's a real issue. But uh, they've been supposedly developing their own operating system. They've supposedly been developing their own chips. I think um, the industry experts would, I think, are expecting that if it, if the restrictions or the cutoff stay in place, then you know we could have a, a slowdown of the global ro rollout of five G. You know that that kind of pushes it all back by two or, or three years. Um, and, you know, longer term, this is likely to increase Chinese efforts to develop its own chip technology and reduce its dependence on the, on the West. Uh, sometime last month, Huawei already announced that it's going to, you know, uh, increase its spending on R&D. Um, and President Xi has been going around China giving speeches about self-reliance and the need to uh, develop its own indigenous technologies. Right, and, and of course, if from China's standpoint, um, uh, one would imagine that the, the sorts of things that are occurring uh, now uh, give them a very strong incentive to try to redouble their efforts to build a, an electronic supply chain that depends as little as much on the U.S. And I guess my question is, how successful do you think China will be at, at doing that? And relatedly, what do you think the longer-term consequences of that would be for the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I I don't have a great answer because I think it's just it's just so unknown, right? The, that so many U.S. Uh, and Chinese technology companies rely on global supply chains that are so tightly linked to each other. You know, Huawei has said that there's about 1,200 U.S. suppliers 
Um, so the, you know, the short-term and long-term disruptions could be, could be massive. Um, and both sides, you know, benefited from this relationship, um, you know, increased efficiency and, and scale for both sides and, and, and help both sides um, uh, innovate, innovate faster. Um, I, you know, I am slightly worried that the, the longer term effects are going to be worse for the United States than, than for China, because, uh, China has a model in place that allows it to double down on kind of indigenous innovation. It, it, you know, it can easily, uh, increase the spending on R and D and other things that the government does. Uh, it's harder for the U S to get a political, um, consensus behind increasing spending these days um, and you know the US benefited from openness in, in ways that um, I think it can be severely hurt uh, if the, the supply chains uh, are, are severely disrupted. Right and one, one uh, relatedly one issue that's been in the news is, is these uh, rare earth metals right and, and as I, if I understand it correctly China is really the, the dominant global supplier uh, of those and, and uh, here in the United States, of course, we rely on those in our own electronics as well. So obviously, there's some mutual dependency. Yes. Um, the Chinese have tried to use rare earths before. They used it against the Japanese after uh, some uh, uh, conflict over disputed uh, uh, islands. Um, the issue with rare earths, though, is, is that it's not that they're so, much they're so rare. It's just you know, they're somewhat costly to get out of the ground. Um, and so using rare earths uh, in many ways is a kind of a one, one and done for China because if you use it, then the price goes up. It becomes more kind of economically efficient to, to take it out of the earth and, and, and use it. So you can already see that after they used it against the Japanese, there was a growth in, uh, in, in mines in, in the U.S. and Australia and, and other places. But again, short term, it would certainly be disruptive. And, and some people have spoken, if we look kind of take a step back, we look at what's happening between the U.S. and China. I mean, of course, there are different aspects of, of the tension. There's the trade tensions, there's technology tensions, but some people have termed it a, quote, technology cold war, close quote. Is that a description that you think is accurate and, and why or why not? So, I mean, I, I think it, it catches, it captures the the intensity and and what might be at stake in the conflict but it, it, it's not a cold war uh in the sense that the u.s and soviets kind of stood facing each other with two separate blocks right i mean the, the u.s and the soviets did a minuscule amount of of um trade with each other uh and you know personal flows, people-to-people -people relations were all pretty, pretty small. So while we may have an intense conflict over uh, kind of technology issues with China, we're, we're having it with, you know, a country that we are uh, so tightly interlinked, both on the economic front, but also, you know, on science and technology issues more broadly. I think, you know, the, the flow of personnel and the, the amount of scientific cooperation that happens between American universities and Chinese universities, uh, cooperation between companies and universities. It's just at a scale that, that did not exist during the, during the cold war. And I think really changes the nature of the, of the competition. I think the, the fallout, you know, in many ways is, is, is not going to be so much between the U S and China, because in some ways we already have a bifurcated, technology spheres, right? I mean, most Americans don't use 
uh, WeChat or um, Alipay or Alibaba or other Chinese um, platforms. And the same can be said about, you know, Chinese users. They're not using Facebook and, uh, and Twitter and, and, and other things. I think the fallout is likely to be more in places like uh, India and Indonesia and South Africa in, in large third markets where um, users and governments are going to have to make a decision about which technology standards they adopt and which platforms they're on. And do you see the, these, I mean, certainly the tensions, uh, you know, the technology and cybersecurity and trade or broadly, these tensions have, have certainly ratcheted up pretty significantly in, in spring of 2019. Do you see this as the new normal with the potential to last uh, many years, including uh, past the, the 2020 U.S. presidential election, regardless of, of who wins? Or do you see this as something that you know, perhaps you know, by the time we get into late summer or fall, it might have really simmered down? Uh, I think the underlying tensions remain. Um, you know, even at the end of the Obama administration, you could be, begin to see a rethinking about the, about the interdependence and uh, the vulnerabilities that created for U.S. national security and national economic interests. And in particular, there was a report that came out of the uh, Office of Science and Te uh, Technology Advisors on semiconductors that talked about the competition with China, uh, and then a report that you know came out after President Obama had left the uh, left office, but it was you know began beforehand, which is known as the you know the DIU report, the Defense uh, Innovation Units report, on looking at Chinese investment at early stage um, technology frontier technology companies in the Valley, and both of those reports reflect this concern about. Uh, technology competition and technology flow. Uh, you know, clearly the, some of the heat will go out of the relationship or, and some of the uncertainty will go out if we have a more uh, traditional kind of foreign policy and trade process in place if, the, you know, if President Trump loses the 2020 election. But I don't see, you know, even if the Democrats retake the White House, if that they are these issues I think are going to continue um, and the technology is going to remain very high on the agenda uh, no matter who's, who's president. And for, from the standpoint of U.S. consumers, does, does any of this lead to consequences that they might notice uh, you know, beyond others? If you weren't reading you know, the, the news on this and you're just you know, going about you know, your daily affairs, for example, would you notice this in terms of the availability and prices of technology products or services in the out years if this continues? Or is this at a level that, that most people, if they're not specifically paying attention to these news stories, wouldn't have reason to notice? Uh, I think we, the average consumer is going to start noticing because prices will, will start going up. I mean, I think you know, there is a, a widespread sense that the, tr that the trade war and the tariffs are, are, are going to be around uh, at least for, for a year, maybe, if not more, under President Trump. Uh, prices are going to go up. I think the average user is going to see that. I think long term, you know, uh, I do think that kind of the rollout of, of 5G in the U.S. Uh, and other Western markets will be slowed. Um, and so kind of on the innovation front, a, a lot of people working on things like uh, self-driving cars and um, other AI kind of driven 
um, systems that are going to requ require you know huge data flows and low latency are going to start seeing that uh, affect the pace that they can roll out their uh, services and products. Yeah, and, and a delay with 5G would be, I think, uh, a concern. I would imagine for for globally, right, in the sense that, or at least anyone's affected, because 5G is going to be, of course, the communications infrastructure for driverless cars and Internet of Things devices and many other things. So it, it would seem that that if that really does get delayed, you know, you, you mentioned uh, you know, potentially significant delays. It seems like that that would have tangible, concrete effects on kind of knock-on effects in a number of different industries. Yeah, I, I, I do think we're going to enter in a slower period, and and then and just the kind of the amount of uncertainty about those knock-on effects, I think, is also going to kind of slow things down because, um, you know, I just think there's going to be a, uh, you know, China's not going to be the only country that that draws the lessons about, um, you know, the U.S. is going to take advantage of um, other countries' dependence on U.S. supply chains, right? Um, uh, Henry Farrell and and uh, Abe Newman have, have you know kind of popularized this idea that the U.S. is weaponizing interdependence across a range of issues. So if I you know if I'm uh, a country with technological ambitions and moving up the supply chain, I, I'm going to you know wonder if the U.S. is going to be a reliable supplier, especially if I have some te uh, political tensions with them um, that they're going to they're going to try to uh, impose costs on me. Right, and that lesson, of course, will will live long past uh, any of the particular tensions of the moment between U.S. the U.S. and China on on these issues. Yeah, because you you know you it's not like you can keep moving supply chains back and forth. Once you start moving them and and rebuilding them, there, there's a, a huge amount of uh, cost, sunken costs that you're going to you want to take advantage of. And and given that the U.S. and China are the two world's largest economies, and at least as things look right now, seem to be in the process of erecting um, some pr pretty, pretty pretty significant restraints on trade. Um, that is it correct that that's also going to impact the global trade environment? Just because it's not as if I you mean know, there's plenty of there are plenty of goods and products that you know pass through one or both of the U.S. and China during the manufacturing process, but then end up in countries that are different than both you know, U.S. and China. Yeah, I mean, look, for, you know, historically, the U.S. has been a promoter of, of free trade, and, you know, the U.S. was building the, the TPP, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, in an effort to help encourage the free flow of these goods in the in the you know, the wake of uh, President Trump's distrust for trade deals, multilateral trade deals, the Chinese have tried to position themselves as being the protector of, of free trade and, um, you know, in, at Davos and other places have given these speeches that have suggested that somehow they're going to um, step into the breach. I, I don't think anyone believes that and it's been not particularly convincing given the, the restrictions and, and uh, non-market uh, trade barriers that the Chinese have in, have in place. Um, so yes, I think if you lose those two big engines, um, then you know you, you get either a kind of a, a regional focuses um, or bilateral or you know just a generally a, a starts having a, a more and more countries 
thinking about how they can protect what they uh, technology assets or, or other types of uh, supply chains or, or manufacturing capabilities. Right, and, and presumably the more siloed the global ecosystem becomes, then you, know, you mentioned efficiencies and things like that. There is presumably a loss of efficiency when you have um, people unable to sort of leverage uh, global supply chains in the way that they have uh, until fairly recently. Yeah, I mean, these, these supply chains, right, were, were built uh, because they provided uh, this kind of uh, efficiency and, and competitive advantages um, and, you know, dismantling them without really knowing or moving them without really having a sense of what's going to replace them and, and where the, the um, kind of the production is going to be along the supply chain, I think is, you know, it's going to be incredibly disruptive. And here's a question, just turning back to the, the specific cybersecurity issues and uh, for example, uh, blocking uh, Huawei products. Um, that, what of the arguments that someone might make that um, that supply chains are pretty complicated? So while you might it might be easy from a sort of policy standpoint to block uh, the use of technology from one particular company, you know, you might buy something from you know a product that's manufactured in it's labeled as manufactured in the United States, but of course. If it's an electronics product, it almost certainly contains uh, components that were in fact manufactured in, in Asia and, and quite possibly China. So um, to what extent does that complexity um, you know, change the game when you sort of, you know, are we oversimplifying things, I guess is the question. Yeah, I think there's um, a strong argument to be made that you know, you, you, you're, you're unlikely to get uh, a, a huge gain on in cybersecurity by insisting on kind of national origins. Um, uh, as you said, you know, even if you say it has to be an American product, um, uh, it, it is almost uh, um, almost guaranteed to include components that uh, that are come from other parts of the supply chain. You know, there's there's a very few cases with you know trusted foundries or other things that are very highly specific and very expensive to do. But the so then you have to come up with a, ways about how do you um, secure the supply chain or how do you ensure some type of um, reliability and and uh, degree of trust in those products. And you know there are there have been kind of uh, either third-party inspections, global standards, other things to do, uh, redundancies in the systems, you know, that I think we are um, kind of moving towards that, towards that kind of thinking about, and that's what I think some of the countries that are saying that they're going to use Huawei, even though they don't trust it, in particular, you know, the Germans and the uh, the Brits and, and the French are saying, look, we realize that there are vulnerabilities that might come from the supply chain, they're but there are also other vulnerabilities that we have to deal with. Uh, and the best way to deal with it is kind of have multiple suppliers and redundancies and layered security approaches. Right. And then there's also the issue of software that, that might get installed into a system well after it you know, arrives in the country in which it's going to be sold. Um, if, if in fact it's an imported product. And of course that's, you know, um, that's another vector for insertion of cyber vulnerabilities that, um, could be, you know, unrelated to where the underlying hardware was was originally manufactured, or or it could be connected to that, depending on the situation. Yeah, and I think when you you read one of the earlier kind of blog posts that the that the British did about their decision to um, to move ahead with Huawei, and and you know, some of it reads as basically saying that, you know, look. Uh, 
we, we already know there's lots of vulnerabilities that have nothing to do with hardware or software, right? They have to do with phishing and social engineering and, and, and um, kind of the decisions people make. Um, and so we're just aware that there's just these vulnerabilities throughout um, the system and we're going to, and we're going to figure out which ones, you know, we're going to manage, which ones we, we think we can address and what are the trade-offs on economics and other kind of concerns. Right. And there's, as you point out, there's, there time and time again, we see how some of the biggest cyber vulnerabilities are simply the fact that, you know, somebody clicks on the wrong, you know, phishing email and, and or spear phishing email. And, and then all of a sudden they've let a hostile actor into their company's system. Yeah. So, you know, the, so far the Chinese, as, we, as far as we know, haven't had to rely on uh, some back to, un, unknown backdoor or, or hardware vulnerability. They just, you know, they've been re relied on spear phishing. Uh, and that's going to remain a vulnerability in the, in the future. Okay. Well, um, any other points that you'd uh, like to make before we uh, wrap it up? Uh, I don't think so. I think we covered a fair amount of ground there. Okay, and the one thing I'll say is I, uh, I, I said one word incorrectly when I was reading the title of your book. I said uh, world instead of age, so to, to oh. make sure it's correct. <laughs> uh, the, the, so your 2016 book is called The Hacked World Order, How Nations Fight, Trade, Maneuver, and Manipulate in the Digital Age. Uh, and so that's uh, the book that, that you've written and uh, has, a, I'm sure, a very good analysis of, of some of the things that we've talked about today. Uh, yes, thanks for having me on. Uh, the book predates uh, um, most of this Huawei stuff, but I do think there is a, there is a small section on the earlier conflicts with the U.S. government and Huawei. Right, and the broader the broader context of sort yeah. of the geopolitical the geopolitical implications of sort of a, a complex interlinked uh, world where there's a bunch of you know kind of digital uh, dependencies between uh, different countries. I think it's, a, it's an issue that predates this year and, and your book. Is, is something that would be really useful reference for that. So um, very, very much appreciate you being uh, on this, uh, on, on the podcast with us. And uh, thank you very much. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be on. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts and ideas from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org.